You've been listening to the weekly sermon from the Vine Church in Madison, Wisconsin, a spirit-filled family that makes disciples and plants churches among neighbors and nations through declaration and demonstration. For more information and service times, check out our website at www.thevinemadison.org. Well, why don't we go ahead and find our seats and we'll get started here today. So glad that you're with us this morning. James, uh, February 1st? Yes. Okay. Uh, So a couple announcements um, that we're excited about before we dive into God's word. Uh, Number one, uh, Justin Eccles has worked through a year of elder development and then another year of elder candidacy. And so we would like to recommend him as being, as elders, we would like to recommend him as being a full elder now. And so it's up to you uh, as the congregation. We give you two weeks again. We did this a year ago. We'll do it now uh, to give us any feedback, uh, positive, negative, whatever. Uh, We want to hear what you have to say about that. Um, We take eldership very seriously here. It's a very high calling. And so um, any feedback that you have, you can reach out to myself or David or James or John Centennial. And we'd love to hear that. We're really thankful and excited for Justin. And then secondly, um, we have confirmed that uh, James Davenport is going to be coming on full-time staff. And so, yeah, really excited about that. Amen. And so he's going to be coming on uh, after seeking y'all's feedback. Um, he is going to be starting February 1st. And so we're really excited about that. He's going to be overseeing, currently what he's doing, uh, 10 hours a week, is overseeing uh, babies through 12th graders and that discipleship. And then in addition, he's going to be overseeing our city groups and preaching once a month and then whatever other things I can come up for him. Uh, Come up for, how does that go? Come up with for him. See, I can speak English. All right, so exciting things there on the leadership front. Um, And so we're just so thankful that God is doing really cool things here at the Vine. Why don't you grab your Bible? And we're going to open up to Matthew chapter 9. Matthew chapter 9, starting in verse 18. Matthew 9, starting in verse 18. So the word faith is a bit of a uh, buzzword in Christianity. We talk about faith a lot. We have our faith in God, right? And Christianity, I think it's very important that as Christians, if you're a Christian here today, we define that word as not just like a blind faith. See, Christian faith is an informed faith. There is an object to our faith, right? Meaning it's, it's, not, we're not, it's not blind. No, there's an object to our faith that we, we can see. It's concrete. It's historical. We don't take blind leaps of faith without reasons to uphold why you would take that leap. Make sense? And in our text today, we're going to see how that works very clearly in Christianity. And what we're going to see in three different scenarios today is this. We're going to see a clear progression 
that I think all of us are going to be able to relate to. Number one, we see people that have extreme desperation. They're suffering incredibly, and there's a sense of extreme desperation. And then secondly, they they look to Jesus in trusting faith. They look to Jesus in trusting faith. And then thirdly, we see restoration. So desperation, look to Jesus, restoration. So this morning, our text is a little bit longer. So what I'm going to do is I'm just going to read it verse by verse, and I'm going to stop and make some comments here and there, and then we're going to have some application, and then we'll be done. Pretty simple, okay? So let's dive in, starting in verse 18. While he, this is Jesus, while he was saying these things to them, behold, a ruler came in and knelt before him, saying, my daughter has just died. Come and lay your hand on her, and she will live. So think about that. This is an impossible situation. A child has died. Your child has died. There's so many parents in the room who could relate to that scenario. So this is a desperate, horrible situation. And there's nothing that this guy can do about it. He can't overcome it on his own. Praise God, in in our family, we have four kids. We've never lost a child, but we have experienced different health challenges with our kids. Most recently, uh, almost two years ago now, our our second daughter was diagnosed with epilepsy. And uh, it's been about 20 months now that we've had that diagnosis. And just in these last couple months, things have become increasingly challenging with, with Autumn having seizure activity. And recently, um, she just had a kind of a flash seizure for three or four seconds, but we weren't able to get to her, and she fell down, and she hit her head. And she was okay, but that really freaked us out. Like, you know, everything was fine, but what happens when it's not fine, and she has a seizure, and she falls down? Man, that that was stressful. It has been very stressful in these last couple months. There's no promise that that's going to get better in this life. We've prayed, we've sought medical attention, but those emotions can bring, it was your child, that, that can bring a sense of desperation and powerlessness. Like we can't just fix this. And it, it brings you to, a, to, the, to an end of yourself. Thankfully, it seems like in the last 10 days, things have gotten better, trending in the right direction. Praise God. But this poor man in our text, his situation was worse. His daughter had died. And as a result, we see, what do we see here? What would you, what would you describe as char- characteristic here of how he carries himself? I, I see humility. He doesn't come with a sense of entitlement. He doesn't come bringing demands to Jesus. Like, you owe me this. But he's desperate, but he's humble. And we see that, look at, in his physical posture. What does it say? It says he came, this ruler came and knelt before Jesus. That's a posture of humility. That's not a posture of making demands, is it? And this guy is a ruler. In this context, that would be like a religious ruler, a Pharisee. Okay? 
And typically, these guys are Jesus' enemies. And I don't know what was going on in this guy's heart. We don't have much more information. But evidently, this, this, this situation brought him to his knees, act, you know, physically, experientially, and in his heart. He's profoundly humbled by the suffering and death of his daughter. Now look at how he expresses his faith. He says, my daughter has just died, but come and lay your hand on her and she will live. Now it's not completely accurate faith, but it's clearly faith nonetheless, right? He doesn't express any doubt, does he? He just says, it's a one-to-one connection. Jesus, you show up and it'll be done. Boom. Now he doesn't fully understand Jesus yet. He probably wasn't around chapter 8 with the, uh, with the centurion and his servant. And Jesus just spoke a word and the servant was healed. He didn't have to lay a hand on. So he doesn't fully understand Jesus' power. He could just say the word and it would be done. It's not a completely accurate faith, but it's faith nonetheless. He doesn't question. My daughter's just died. You come, lay your hand on her. She will live. Doesn't, doesn't qualify, doesn't hesitate, doesn't stutter. It's just raw belief. And look how Jesus responds. Verse 19. And Jesus rose and followed him with his disciples. All right, so they're on the way. But then verse 20 comes. Doesn't get very far. Jesus gets interrupted now. All right? So now we move on to situation number two. We'll come back to the ruler. But Jesus gets very... Uh, gets immediately interrupted. Look at verse 20. And behold, that, again, that's, Matthew uses that word all the time. When, when Matthew says behold, what he's saying is, check it out, pay attention. Like, hear ye, hear ye. There's something I want you to, to see here. And so he says, and check it out, audience. Behold, a woman who had suffered from a discharge of blood for 12 years came up behind him. And touched the fringe of his garment. For she said to herself, if I only touch his garment, I will be made well. So again, Jesus is confronted with another horribly desperate situation. Impossible. She has no control over what's happening to her. She didn't have modern technology that could probably deal with a situation like this. this. This poor woman has so much stacked against her and much reason not to approach Jesus, but she is clearly desperate. Now let me help you understand why this was such a severe situation for her. If you had a discharge of blood in this context historically, in this religious context, she would have been deemed ceremonially unclean, okay? So what that means is she would have been isolated, shunned, don't go near. And the religious life and social life for Jewish people at this time were very much intertwined and overlapping. So she would have been ostracized socially and religiously. It's like a one-two punch. And she's a woman in this society. Woman, women were, were lower class. They were second class citizens. And she would have been anemic. 
So she probably just carried this weight of, of, of physical weakness with her at all times. And then finally, she probably would be consigned to singleness as long as she had this sickness. And in this context, obviously it's not the same today, but back then, if you didn't have a man in your life, you were at a great disadvantage. So she's in a very desperate situation. She's suffering horribly in a variety of ways, powerless to change herself. But now we see in the midst of this powerless situation, desperate situation, a second statement of bold faith from someone in these verses. Look at what she says in verse 20. She says, very clear, she doesn't hesitate, doesn't waffle. All she says is, all I have to do is touch him and I will be well. Now that's, again, it's not exactly perfect faith. It's not exactly correct People didn't just run up and touch Jesus and then run away healed. That's not usually how it would work. But again, Jesus doesn't need perfect faith. He just wants faith. Check it out. It's not the size of your faith. It's not the amount of your faith. It's the object of your faith. You hear that? It's not the size or amount of your faith. But what is the object of your faith? What are you trusting in? Look at verse 22. Jesus turned and seeing her, he said, Take heart, daughter. Your faith has made you well. So Jesus sees her. Jesus pauses. He notices her. He didn't have to, but he did. And I want you to notice the gentle compassion of Jesus. And it's easy to miss, but I think it's, it's really clear when you look at how he addressed her. He doesn't say, take heart, woman. He says, take heart, daughter. Think of what that represents. Think of what that represents. Daughter is a statement of identity, right? You have a family. You belong. You're loved, right? Based on her singleness, her physical affliction, her being cut off from community due to her illness that she didn't ask for, she had so much stacked against her. And she's probably drowning in isolation. And Jesus stops and he says, I see you. I see you. I won't ignore you. I won't shun you. I will heal you and restore you to community. You see that? See, daughter means you have community. You do have a place. You do have an identity. You are loved by me. So this woman's faith in Jesus would have restored her through her healing immediately, right on the spot. No more being ostracized. No more daily suffering from this bleeding. 
Maybe a chance to get married, in, in, which in that culture would have been very valuable and important. So this is the first time we see it go all the way. Her faith in Jesus, extreme desperation, trusting in Jesus as the object of my faith leads to restoration. Let's keep reading. Verse 23. So they keep going. They were on the way to this guy's house before they got interrupted and have this beautiful scene with this poor woman. Verse 23. And when Jesus came to the ruler's house and saw the flute players and the crowd making a commotion. See, in this day, sometimes you would have people come and, and, and go through the ritual of mourning and sadness. And there would be people with music. Sometimes people would just come just to, like, weep with those who weep. Maybe you didn't even know the person who died. But it was usually more kind of a, a bigger ordeal, okay? Making, uh, and the flute players and the crowd making a commotion. Verse 24. He said, go away, for the girl is not dead but sleeping. And they laughed at him. But when the crowd had been put outside, he went in and took her by the hand and the girl arose, and the report of this went throughout all the district. So Jesus comes, he goes in, he touches this young woman, and she's risen from the dead. Now again, culturally speaking, religiously speaking, touching a corpse would again make you ceremonially unclean. But check this out. Jesus is not infected by death. This dead girl is infected with life simply by the touch of Jesus. Right? So again, horribly desperate situation. Trusting in Jesus by faith. Jesus, I trust that you can do this. I'm not, I'm not doubting. I'm not qualifying. I'm not wavering or waffling. And that led to this girl's restoration. This is the second impossible situation that is restored by Jesus because of looking to him in faith. Now, let's look at a third impossible situation, verse 27. And as Jesus passed on from there, two blind men followed him, crying aloud, Have mercy on us, son of David. And when he entered the house, the blind men came to him. And Jesus said to them, Do you believe that I am able to do this? They said to him, yes, Lord. Then he touched their eyes, saying, according to your faith, be it done to you. And their eyes were opened. And Jesus sternly warned them, see that no one knows about it. But they went away and spread his fame through all that district. If you're blind, there's nothing you can do about it, right? Being blind in a world that's built for those with sight is this, in some ways kind of like being, trying to be a fish when you can't breathe underwater. The world is stacked against you if you're blind, especially in this culture that doesn't have modern regulations about people that have unique needs. So again, these men are seeing Jesus. They're bringing their desperation to Jesus. They're powerless to change anything about their situation. And again, we see that faith, faith, not 
trusting in yourself, but trusting in something outside of yourself is the pathway to restoration. How do we see their faith? Well, Jesus just, it's real simple here. Jesus just asks them. He says, do you believe? And they don't hesitate. They don't say, yeah, kind of. I mean, yeah, I guess. They say yes, without hesitation. And what happens? They're healed. They're healed. Are we beginning to see a pattern here? I think this pattern, Matthew's trying to show an original audience and an audience 2,000 years later wants us to see the same thing. There's incredible suffering and desperation. Look to Jesus in trusting faith and then restoration. Now look with me at the second half of verse 33. It says this, And the crowds marveled, saying, Never was anything like this seen in Israel. But the Pharisees said, He casts out demons by the prince of demons. So we've got three different responses here in this text, don't we? What are we going to do with Jesus? How do we make sense of what we've just witnessed in these healings? The first thing we've seen clearly is trusting faith. Trusting faith. We look to Jesus, we believe him, we're going to him. But then we see here in the second half of 33, there's the crowds. And the crowds are amazed, but we know in the Gospels the crowds are oftentimes fickle. And they'll be amazed, but that amazement doesn't lead to them following Jesus and actually trusting him. It's more like Jesus is kind of like a sideshow at the circus. Like, that's cool. All right, on to the next thing. So you've got the crowds, but we don't have a report of them following. And then you've got the Pharisees here. Look at, look at that. Verse 34. He casts out demons by the prince of demons. So the Pharisees can't explain what Jesus is doing, but they know that supernatural power is either from God or from the devil. And they're not willing to say this is from God. So what's the, there's only one other choice, right? He's got to be doing this through the power of the, of the enemy, of the devil. Jesus, you're in league with Satan. Now, that's the opposite of trusting and treasuring Jesus, right? It's denying and devaluing him in the highest way. So we see three different responses here. You've got trusting faith that will do anything to get to Jesus. You've got amazement but no follow-through. And then you have outright condemnation. So put yourself in the text right now. What do you say? What do we say? All three groups are witnesses, are they not? All three groups have access to the same truth. But only one group of people experiences the power of God in a tangible way that changes their life forever. See, here's a question that I think many of us 
should consider. Many of us say we want to experience the power of God, but over and over in the Bible, the people who experience the power of God in profoundly tangible ways are those who are most desperate, are willing to admit it, and then they know where to turn. They turn to God. Those who are most needy, those who are most in over their heads, and they know where to turn. Those are the people that experience the power of God. I know some of you feel this way this morning. You feel that sense of neediness. You feel that sense of desperation. Like, I'm at the end of myself, and I can't change it. And I want you to hear from this text that Jesus sees you. He sees you. The Bible says he's close to the brokenhearted. We see that Jesus has time for the afflicted. He makes a way for the downcast. Look at what Psalm 34 says. When the righteous cry for help, the Lord hears and delivers them out of all their troubles. The Lord is near. He's not far. He's near to the brokenhearted and saves the crushed in spirit, many are the afflictions of the righteous. Like, if you're afflicted this morning, did you see this? It may not be because God is out to get you. It's the biblical promise that this life is filled with afflictions. What did Jesus say? In this world, you will have trouble, but take heart, I have overcome the world. The psalmist is saying the same thing. Many are the afflictions of the righteous. If you're afflicted, that doesn't mean that God's out to get you. But the Lord delivers him out of them all. He keeps all his bones. Not one of them is broken. So, man, if you see anything from this text, feel free to just turn to Jesus and cry out to him. Son of David, have mercy on me. You might get a miracle in the next five minutes. Just like these folks. In the next five seconds. God can do that. He does do that. But it also might not be in this life. It might be in the new heavens and the new earth. But know this for sure. Your restoration, if you're in Christ... It's only a matter of when, not if. You hear me? Your restoration based on coming to Jesus in desperate faith is only a matter of when, not if. The same power, the Bible says, the same power that raised Jesus from the dead will give life to our mortal Bodies. That's Romans chapter 8. What does that mean? What that means is Jesus was risen from the dead. And one day we will rise from the dead as well. And on that day, all the blindness will be restored. All the bleeding will cease. All the dead who love Jesus will be restored to everlasting joy. 
And whatever else you're dealing with in this room, it will one day be made right. It could be made right in the next five seconds. There's no promise for that. It can happen. Cry out to Jesus. Ask him for it. We believe God can heal whatever you're dealing with. But many are the afflictions of the righteous. And we will have trouble in this life. Jesus has overcome that. And one day we're going to see that overcoming without hindrance. And it will be as clear as anything you've ever seen. It's not a matter of when. It's just a matter of when, not if. So we wait on the Lord. The older I've gotten, the more precious and painful that biblical refrain that you see over and over again is, wait for the Lord. Your waiting might be five minutes. Your waiting might be a lifetime or in anything in between. Wait for the Lord. Wait on the Lord. No matter your situation, we're all going to face You just got to live long enough, and you're going to face some type of suffering that will bring you to your knees like this ruler. Look to Jesus. Trust in his love for you, and he will make it all right. It's just a matter of time. And, And yes, we know and we admit that the waiting room, like wait for the Lord, like the waiting room in the hospital is one of the worst places in all the world, right? That sense of uncertainty. But there's coming a day when the doctor will come out and look you in the eye and he's going to say, it's fine. It's all fine. It was all worth it. In our human waiting rooms, we don't have that. But there's a heavenly waiting room that we're, we sit in right now where, where the great physician will one day come out. And he will say, it's okay. It's going to be fine. Your restoration, your day of restoration is today. We wait for the Lord. But it all comes down to this. What's the object of your faith? You see that common thread here? What's the object of their faith? The object of their faith was Jesus. It wasn't anybody else. Lord, to whom shall we go? You have the words of eternal life. I got nothing else. Jesus, you're it. So what is the object of our faith, especially in these situations that we all face face now, in the next five days or some other time in the next five years? We're all going to confront situations where we're going to feel like these people in this text. So the question at that moment is, what's the object of my faith? Is it me and my ability to control the situation? Is it other idolatries I might run to that seem maybe a little more accessible, a little more tangible? I can see it. I'm going to trust in it. The claim of the Bible based on the cross of Jesus and the resurrection of Jesus from the dead is that in your deepest, darkest desperation, he's worthy to be trusted. He's worthy for you to cry out to him. And our job as a church is to remind each other of that, right? 
That's what's going to strengthen us as we rejoice with those who rejoice and we weep with those who weep. And we look one another in the eye and say, Jesus is worthy to be trusted. That's what's going to make our, our church really strong in these moments as we walk with one another in these times. Amen. Amen. So what's the progression we've seen? What's the progression we've seen? We've seen suffering that is out of the control of human beings, desperation, neediness, Jesus as the object of our faith, and restoration in the next five seconds or at the end of your life. It's just a matter of of when, not if. Let's pray. Father, we believe. Help our unbelief. Would you help us, God? Would you help us, God? Lord, I know there's people in the room right now that feel like these folks that we read about from 2,000 years ago. So, Lord, would you help us come around them? Would you comfort them right now by your spirit? Would you awaken us to the fact that you are the object that we can trust? You are the person that we can trust. And may, may we look away from ourselves and look to you. In Jesus' name, amen. Amen. Matthew says this in chapter 26. As they were eating, Jesus took bread.